beginning of the week, we started the last part of the, uh, last week we started the last part of our school year. It's divided into thirds. This passage is divided into thirds, so I better keep moving right along, huh? All right, so we're going to, even though there are in chapters 56 and 57, actually two messages, they're so tightly related to one another that I'm going to combine them so that we get back on track. We have to get through all of this before the end of the year. So we're going to be in chapters 56, 57 of the book of Isaiah tonight, thinking about the breadth that the salvation which was bought for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the breadth of its application. Uh, very encouraging passage. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you tonight and we give you thanks for the wonderful things that you have done and the wonderful ways that you have spoken to our hearts, that we might know that you are God, that we might know that you have a plan, that we might know your way. Father, I come to give you thanks for that tonight. We come to give you thanks for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I come to give thanks for the day when, when you came to each one of us with that message and wakened us up from wrath to flee. And we come and thank you tonight. Now we're coming and asking you to Enable us to understand it in its richness, in its fullness. Father, speak to us by your Spirit from your Word, and we trust you for it. And we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Isaiah, this last section, the last 27 chapters divided into three parts, nine chapters apiece. In the first nine chapters, we saw that there is the promise of salvation. It's all about God as the God who is real as opposed to the idols that men create, who has a plan and he's going to execute that. In the middle chapters, it moves from God as the God opposed to the idols to a person, to the person of the suffering servant. The first half of that section tells us about that servant and what he's going to do leading up to chapter 53, the central chapter of the entire section. And in that central chapter, he describes what would take place on the cross in order that salvation might be brought to the whole human race. After that, from there to the end of this section, and that's where we're going to be today, he tells us how it's applied, what a person has to do about that, what opportunity is there. Last week we were talking about how you actually enter into it to seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he's near, and what's involved in all that. But in these last two chapters, Isaiah turns to questions that the heart asks about whether God can take me in. I think that's an important one. Do I count in all this? Now, remember, he's speaking to a Jewish crowd. These are Hebrews. These are people that have the covenant with God. And the question that comes up as to this, it's described as being broad to everybody, but is it real? Does God really intend for all of us to be in it? And in these two chapters, he's going to describe the opportunity, the possibility that is, a, is available to each one of us tonight to enter into all this. So this was important, of course, for the Jewish people to know in the day when Isaiah spoke it. It was important for the people during the captivity to know that those who came along with them back to Jerusalem, they could have a part in this. It's important in the day of the Lord for this to be known, and we're going to see tonight in the book of Acts, it follows right along with these chapters, um, that they might know 
that God is making this available to everyone. And of course, it's important for us tonight because we have to know that we're not excluded from the possibility and what we have to do about that. So I'm going to begin reading in, in chapter 56. And again, because we are going over two chapters, I realize this is a lot in one night, but it's really not too complicated. And so I'm going to read verses and then we'll just make comments on them. And I think it unfolds fairly clearly. The first part is what's the possibilities? Possibilities that are there. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteous righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does, who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it. And taking hold of it what? You're taking hold of that salvation. My salvation is about, about to be revealed. How blessed is a man who takes hold of it. And that's what the rest of these chapters are about. How blessed you can be if you take hold of it. And he, he describes what it means to take hold of it in language that, that Isaiah uses. I'm not going to explain this too much, but he, he uses two things here. He says, first of all, and keeps from profaning the Sabbath. Now, in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to see that as we get to the next section, Isaiah uses the Sabbath as a picture. A person who keeps the Sabbath is a person who has a right relationship with God. He's not going through formalities. He has, he's come to that place where he takes that time to direct his heart to God. And so it's, it speaks about it. the man who keeps the Sabbath is a man who is determined to keep his relationship with God right. Then he says something else about him. He says, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. As if that is true, if a person has a right relationship with God, they also have to have a right relationship with people around them. This formula is is described in a lot of different ways. You remember the the one from the book of Micah, well-known formula, when a person in the book of uh, Micah says, what are we going to do to come to God? And he says, he's told you, oh man, what's good? What does the Lord require of you? Now he reverses the order there, but to do justice, that has to do with my relationship with people. To love mercy, love compassion, love... Love mercy, the, again, with a relationship with men. And to do what? And to walk humbly with your God. That's all you're required to do. Now, in this book, he's just saying, now, this is a blessed man who does that, all right, who's laid hold of that. And that's where he's going to begin. All right, and then he said, he's going to answer some questions. What about those who aren't technically part of the covenant? who want to come into that. You remember earlier in the book he said, it's, it's a small thing that you should be, it's too small a thing that you should just bring my own people back. I'm going to make you what? A light to the nations. And so he says that this light's going to go out there. And so he, just, he talks to those people. He's talking to the ones from the outside who want to come in. He says, let not the foreigner, that's somebody who's not in the covenant, that's a Gentile, who has joined himself to the Lord. He's committed himself to this, this program. Let him not say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. A fear that somehow I'm not, I'm not worried to be in there. I want to be in it. I'm ready to follow. But when God makes the division, will he cut me out? Now, this would have been particularly important when they went to, into captivity and come back from that captivity. And people did come with them who admired what they taught. And all through the Old Testament, there are people 
who identified themselves with the people of God. They called them God-fearers. They're people that tried to enter in, wanted to get become part of it. There was a formal way you could do this, but he just speaking to them. He said, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Uh, that was because the eunuch doesn't have the possibility of participating in the full ceremonial law because of his condition. All right. And here comes the word of encouragement. What a beautiful word here. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep the, keep my Sabbath. What does it mean? He's, he's got a right. He wants a right relationship with me. And choose what pleases me and holds fast my covenant to them. I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughter better than sons and daughters and i will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off and also the foreigner i think the order here is real important we're going to come back to that in just a moment but the order is important he started off by talking about the foreigners he went to the eunuchs but now as he describes it he starts with the eunuch and he goes to the foreigner and also the foreigners who join themselves to the lord to minister to him and to love the name of the lord to be his servants Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, again, have right relationship with God, or tries or aims at that, and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring into my holy mountain. And here goes a passage which you're probably familiar with. And make them joyful in my, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, that is the foreigners' burnt offerings, and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Now, you remember that that passage is quoted by the Lord in the New Testament. He came to the temple one day, a place where men were to meet with God, and he became angry. It's one of the few times that we see the Lord really angry. This is the just, this is, this is the Lord, the perfect man. But he looked in there, and in his zeal, he, gave, he makes a, a whip, and he drives the people out of there. And when he gets finished driving the money changers and all the animals and everything that were crowded in around the temple. He drives them out. He's driving them out of the court of the Gentiles. And he says, this is wrong because my house, he quotes this, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The nation of Israel had forgotten that. It is interesting. Israel had a problem with this. They wanted to to keep things to themselves in a sense. And they, they resisted God's plan to spread the gospel to the whole world. The book of Acts kind of follows along this pattern, if you, you pick it up. In, at the beginning, God works to call Jewish people to himself. You remember that part. That takes you up to chapter 7. In chapter 7, Stephen stands up in front of the Jewish people, the, the Sanhedrin. He's not in, in the assembly there, but he's, he's before Jewish leaders. And he starts to preach, and he tells them the history of their experience with God. He said, every time God tried to move, you resisted him. And now God's moving again. And he finishes that chapter, actually quoting from the book of Isaiah. But he's going to say this, you, it, this part isn't the quote, but you stiff-necked. That is, you're, you're, you're resisting God all the time. You, you don't bend to what God has to say. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised, heart and ears. You always resist the Spirit of God. He's trying to do something. 
And then he tells them that God has a temple that's bigger. Nobody can make a temple that, that fits into God. He quotes from the 66th chapter of the book of Isaiah. That's kind of a watershed in the book of Acts. Because that is the point at which the book of Acts directs its attention away from Jewish evangelism to the evangelizing of the rest of the world. Chapter 8 begins that when Philip starts to go to the Samaritans. But next thing that happens in the book, isn't this interesting, is he's taken down to a road. And along that road, he meets a man who is reading from the Scriptures. He's obviously a wealthy man because he has a copy of the Scriptures. He has a copy of the book that we are reading tonight, Isaiah. But he was in Isaiah chapter 53. We spoke of that when we were there. And that man was looking at that passage, and he says, who is he talking about? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? Philip says, And it says there that Philip started there and began to teach him about Jesus. I wonder how far he went. Because that man was a eunuch. That man didn't have a possibility, but he did have a desire because he had just been to Jerusalem not to do business, but he was in Jerusalem to worship. He wanted to be one of those ones that went to that place and worshipped God even though he couldn't fully participate. And he asked a question at the end of the interview with Philip. You remember what the, the question is? Here's water. What hinders me? What's between me and coming into this experience that you've just described. He says, there is nothing. If you're ready, and we won't go into exactly what he says there, but use the words of the book of Isaiah that we're going to be thinking about tonight. If you're ready to take refuge in him, he is ready to meet you right now. Chapter 9 is the conversion of Paul. Chapter 10, a foreigner is offering offerings, attempting to worship God. He's a, he's a a centurion, Cornelius, and he's worshiping God. And Peter comes to him. And Peter gives him the truth of the gospel, and the Spirit of God falls there in demonstration. This is The, the foreigner is not going to get cut off. The eunuch isn't going to be left out. The Spirit of God wants you to know that he put this here so that you can know the message is real. This is God speaking. He says that all that's possible because my house, he says, this is what I want it to be. The place where I am is going to be a house of prayer for the whole world, for every kind of individual. So that's the message of the first part. Uh, I'm not going to take a long time to go, but it's it's important to us. It's important to us to see all that there to help us understand what's coming. I will my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And the Lord was so zealous that that be so. It says, zeal for my house will consume. And it drive them out. Now, after that takes place, in the middle section, Isaiah turns to the people who have heard his message. He's actually preaching at this point to the people who are listening. At his day. I think he's directly addressing the people of his own day. Who were listening in the later part of Isaiah's ministry, but were not responding. He starts at the, he turned at verse 9 of chapter 56. It, that message is over and he starts with this, with a rebuke to the people who are supposed to be directing the nation in righteousness. And he says, the people who are leading the nation, who are supposed to be 
watching out for their spiritual well-being, are all caught up with their way, which their way here was greed. They all were greedy, and they were so caught up with making money that they were asleep with regards to taking care of the people of God. That's the beginning of it. At the That led to a condition, and I'm just telling you what it says. You can read through here. It's kind of in symbolic language, but anyway, you... It leads to a condition where the nation starts to deteriorate because the shepherds aren't taking care of the sheep. But then God does something which is remarkable and they don't notice it. Chapter 57, verse 1 says, The righteous man perishes and no man takes it to heart. The devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds each one who walked in the uprightness of his way. What he's saying is this. While this is all taking place, righteous men, there were some righteous men from from Hezekiah's day, they're dying off. In fact, I'm taking them out. That's the picture here, that I am taking them out to get them out of this mess. I'm going to reward them. It's like Enoch who, who was rewarded by being taken home early. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to give them a chance. But what happens is you, you people are, he's talking to the nation, he's saying, you're so caught up with what's going on, you don't even notice that righteous men are disappearing and you're sliding downhill in your cultural experience. You are getting further and further in trouble. But the people who would restrain that are being removed and I'm not replacing them. That's, that's kind of the thought there. For a long while, period through the rest of the chapter he describes people who have the word of god and blatantly refuse it it's a picture of people he's got again he says you who listen to the message and he, he says literally they stick out their tongue at it like little children who would refuse and yeah you know i won't stick out my tongue but anyway you got the idea but the thought isn't that they're just drifting away. The thought is that they are listening to the Word, and the Word is its powerful, but it's the only thing can can bring to pass the purpose of God, and they're refusing that. And on top of that, they replace their trust in God with the trust in idols, which we saw in the last section, the very, very beginning sections, that uh, a foolish thought, and they're going down along this path. And he says something's going to happen to them. He describes that. And I'm not going to read all that. It's not terribly edifying. But it's a terrible thing to hear the Word of God and go your own way while you're listening to the Word of God. That's what he's warning against. It's a really dangerous thing to start becoming arrogant about the Word of God when you're going your own way. Although, if you're doing that, you probably don't recognize it. But when we get down in chapter 57 to verse 11, he gets to a place where he says, Now, when you do that, your way is going to get you in trouble. It's going to get you all tied up in, in all kinds of problems because once you take off on your own way, it has to lead to sooner or later to problems. And when you get there, he says, this is what he has in verse 11, he says, what's the result of all that in your experience? Well, here's what God's going to do. He says, of whom, you were, of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember, did not remember me? That is when you refused that word. Nor give me a thought. Was I not silent even for a long time? So you did not fear me. Now, he said, I'm silent for a long time. He said, didn't I back off? I got tired. <laughs> he had said that earlier in the book. I'm tired. 
of beating you. I beat you on the head. I beat you on the back. I beat you everywhere I can beat you. And you have endured the punishment and not changed. So when he says here that I didn't speak, it's not just because God doesn't care about them. It's just what's the point? So I backed off. I backed off from being mean, if you would, to you or strong with you. And I let let you go. But you still didn't turn. He's talking about the situation when they're in trouble. I will declare your righteous deeds, but they won't profit you. In other words, all the righteous things that you're going to bring to me and say that you ought to move for on our behalf because of this. He said, that doesn't make any difference. When you cry out, and there's an important thing, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all up, and the breath will take them away. And then he, he's going to change the whole mood here. He says, but he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. Something important to note there. Um, the word of God encourages you to seek the Lord while he may be found. That's what we had last week, right? Seek the Lord while he may be found. He also tells in the Psalms to do that because in the flood of waters, you're not going to be able to get to him. Too often in our lives, we think, well, I, everything's okay today. I can continue in my way. It's not going to be a problem. I know, what the, I know where to turn when the time comes, all right? Last week we said something that was really important. You seek the Lord while he may be found. Now, he's, he's always there. There is no picture in the word of God of a person turning to God and not being met by him. It just isn't there. Every person who honestly comes is met. But in order to honestly come, the human heart needs help. And in the grace of God, there's a lot about that in the book of Isaiah, that in the grace of God, he has come down to move people towards him. When that is taking place, you have an advantage, a help which is extremely important. Don't pass it by. That's what I believe the psalmist is saying. When the problems start to pile up and, and people don't tend to go to God, they have nowhere to grasp, they have nowhere to turn, they don't know how to do it. And because they've ignored it and refused it, it's out of their life and they're in trouble. And that's what God said. When this happens, since you have refused me back here, when this comes to pass, I am not. I'm going to leave you with your idols. Let them. Let them deliver you. All those guys that wanted the money at the very beginning said, "I want you wanted to build that up, and then you get in trouble. Well, let your money deliver you. You want to have your house? Let your house deliver you. you want to have, whatever it was, your business, your family, your your career, anything, whatever you're doing there." But then he says something else here, and the 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 rest of the main part of what we want to cover tonight. Rest on what he says next. He says, but those who take refuge in me will inherit the land. That's another one of Isaiah's ways of describing what it means to exercise faith. We've seen some others before. Those that wait on the Lord will gain the new strength. Those that take refuge in me. Now, the picture here of taking refuge is, uh, take the the sort of city of refuge or just take, take the idea that you're out somewhere in, in the wilderness out there and you, you see somebody's trying to get you. <laughs> so you see, a, you see a house up there. You see a little a city, say, up on, on the top of the hill. And you gotta, you've got to run up that hill and get there before they get to you. That's the picture of taking refuge. Is you've got a real problem pursuing you. But there is a chance, there is a fortress... To which you can go. The psalmist says it this way. The Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to him and are safe. All right. They're safe there. And that's the picture he's giving. 
here's this man who's running, and he says, those that take refuge, those that run there and run to the Lord and take refuge in him, they're going to inherit the land. They're going to find salvation. Everybody who does that. Now, the rest of this book, the rest of this, this section, except for the last two verses, which are just the punctuation point leading us to the third part of the book, is all about what God does for the person who runs to him. It's not for everybody. It's for the person who hears the message and instead of refusing that message, runs to him and takes refuge in him. Right? You get that picture there. What is it like when he takes refuge in the Lord? Verse 14, And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. That's just his promise of salvation. Here comes one of the wonderful verses of the Old Testament about what God wants, the possibility that exists for each one of us tonight. Probably one of my favorite verses from the book of Isaiah. For thus says the high and lofty one. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, it says here, whose name is holy. Now, the picture that we have here, and you, you gotta get, the book is tying itself, it's, it's coming together. The picture is you're running and you come to this tower and you go in. And what do you find when you go in the tower, in that room? Suddenly you, you find yourself in the presence of the high and the holy one. Thus says the one who is high and lofty. He's, 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 he's up there. Now, Think about this vocabulary, and as I'm talking about it, think about Isaiah's experience. In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord high and lifted up, high and lifted up. His train filled a temple. He's in a place. He's in a, he's, he's in a room, if you would. It's a temple room, and he's in there, and he's suddenly confronted with God. And what did he hear in that presence? Angels are speaking to one seraphim, speaking to one another, and what are they saying? Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The heavens, the earth are, are full of His glory. Right? So that's, that's, that's impressive. As he says, the high and lofty one, he's, he's talking about someone he knows. He's been there. He's seen him. Who inhabits eternity. Now, the inhabits eternity just means this. He has eternal life. This is, this is part of the contrast of the book of Isaiah. Remember way back in, at the beginning. All of us are dying. We're, Isaiah Teller tells that messenger in the future, go tell them this, all flesh is grass. We're all grass. But although I am grass and I am dying and you are grass and you are dying, we can be connected to one who is not grass. He's a rock. He's not going away. He is eternal. He's not only eternal in the fact that he goes on, but he is eternally self-sufficient. He is eternally powerful. He does not diminish in any sense, in any way. We talked about how great the, the universe is, just a little bit to understand something of, of the greatness of his power. You know what it says at the end? He made all that. You know, you think if I make that, you go, that was something. But when he gets done, when it's all finished, what's he going to do? He'll roll it up. Billions of light years across. Why? Because he's undiminished. He hasn't gotten tired with time. He hasn't gotten old and crotchety. He's just as sufficient today as he was then. And that God is speaking. 
And he's and when it says he's speaking, he's speaking to everybody who's listening. Right. We can hear it tonight. This is to us. This is to you. It's to me. That's wonderful. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is what? Who's holy. That's a scary word. Holy. If you go through the Old Testament, and look at it. You think what well, Isaiah meant? Holy, holy, holy. And what was his response to that? <gasps> Woe is me. I'm I'm condemned. I'm, I'm ruined. I'm hopeless. I have no way to appeal to this. But the Holy One is speaking. He says, I'm going to dwell in this high and holy place. He doesn't come down. He's not, he's not going to be part of, in a sense, of this earth. He's going to come to us. But he can't, comes to us to take us out and bring us up. Right? Not to come down to forever be here, but to come and meet us, but to take us to himself. All right? I dwell in the high and the holy place. But then the whole thing shifts. With him also. This is a wonderful passage. With him also. Who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's the words that are used in the English for us. Here's the word pictures from the book or from the Hebrew language. To all those with him also who is crushed. He's been beaten and crushed. That's the word. It means to be. It means completely ruined in that crush. Broken down. That's one way it's described. The word for loneliness there, the second phrase, is the idea to have your heart broken. To just be broken hearted. To be overwhelmed. You're not you've been defeated. And you've been heartbroken. And he says, if you were to look, he's in the high and lofty one, he says, if you look around me and look at the people who are in my presence, you will find out they are not the great people of this earth. They are not the powerful people of this earth. They are not the wealthy people. They are not the people that have what it is in this earth. They are the people who have been crushed. And they are the people whose hearts are broken. Is very similar again. I want to say this is so much as ties with the Gospels, right? When the Lord began to describe, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn. They're going to be comforted. Those two phrases parallel exactly what he's talking about here. The invitation is given to take refuge in in Lord, but what will I find if I come to God? What will I find if I come to Him? Uh, and again, I'm here to assure you tonight. This is this is this is not a this is not a negative passage. It's a very positive passage, because the human heart, once it finally realizes that it's in real need, might back off. There are two kinds of pride. We've seen that before. There is a pride that says, I won't come to God because of who, how great I am. There is another kind of pride that says, I can't come to God because of what I've been, where I've been, what I've done. And Isaiah says, you better come to God. Yeah, you've been crushed. Yes, you have been broken hearted. But he says, now come, take refuge. That's the whole point. Take refuge. Don't let that overwhelm you. Don't let it destroy you. Take refuge in the Lord. And what's he say? That those kind of people around him, but it's not just that they're around him, but something's happening to them. To take refuge in the Lord, to get inside of that tower, is to find your being suddenly revived and renewed. 
Because here's what he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to revive the spirit, the inward man (laughs) of the ones who have been crushed, crushed by their sin, crushed by their deficiencies, crushed by all the mistakes they've made. And they come to God and he starts to put them back together again. And those that have their heart broken, it didn't work the way they thought, or their way did not lead to where they thought it was going to lead, and their heart is broken. He says, I'm going to put it back together again. But where does he put it back together again? He puts it inside that tower where he is. As they come to him, he begins to revive and to change. And this is a tremendous verse, and it's available to you and to me. It's one of the very first verses that the Lord used to actually bring me into a vital relationship with himself. What's the thought that I, as a human being, could know God in that way? So that I could, in my life, experience God rebuilding, remaking, rejuvenating my experience. When I started that pursuit, I was pretty impressed with myself, and I didn't get in. And as I told you again, different people have different testimonies, but that was why it took me three years, because I had to go from way up here where the night that I was converted, I can say that, I was finished. I was crushed. I had, okay, (laughs) I give up. uh, There's no chance. But here's the point. When you seek refuge in the Lord, what happens? You find out that that high and holy place is available to you because of chapter 53. Not because God just likes people, but because at an enormous cost to himself, the suffering servant of Jehovah. Jesus Christ himself paid a price, took, took sin on himself so that the potential, the, the, the loving kindness of God could be extended to me. And you find out that, lo and behold, God knows it there. Now, a question comes. What about where I've been? Okay, I'm crushed, but what about where I've been? And this is this becomes important because I know so many times where people think, you know, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. All right, listen to what God has to say. The Lord does know what you've done. He knows where you've been. Listen to what he has to say. I'm going to revive the card, heart of the uh, contrite one. For I will not contend forever. Nor will I always be angry. He's already, remember in the last chapter, he spoke some really tough words to people who are going their own way. He says, that doesn't go on forever. When a person comes, that finishes. For then the spirit would grow faint before me, the breath of those who I have made. They, if, if you marked iniquity, says the psalmist, thought, who would stand? Nobody would stand if you marked iniquity. But there's forgiveness with you so that you might be feared. You might be loved that the fear has to do with getting into that right relationship. You might observe the Sabbath, if, to use Isaiah's language. You might have that right relationship. Because of the iniquity of his... Now, he's talking about that person. Put yourself there. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him. We all came into conviction of sin sooner or later. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the way... Of his heart. Now I know what that means. Because I did that. I did that. I heard the gospel. I was in church all my life. I had a Bible in front of me. Continuously. I ignored it pretty much. It was just enough to keep the edge off my sin. But not enough to turn my heart towards him. 
so that by the time I came to him at 21 years of age, I had a whole lot of things where I had put it out there. And you know, sometimes it's very hard to, to admit who you are. To confess, this is what I've done. That's why it's very good, it's very good for your soul to say, this is what I've done. You want an even better way to do it? Write it on a piece of paper and look at it. This is who I am. This is the reality. You know, there's something in the heart that says, I don't want to do that. But let me just say that before you ever write it down, God's already got it written down because he had to watch it all happen. He's been with you your entire life listening to every outward expression of sin or watching every outward expression of sin, listening to every word you said. And more than that, he had to put up with the thoughts of your heart. Every lust, every lie, every proud thought, every arrogant word, every hateful thought. He's been, <laughs> when you say at the end, you come to the place, you say, oh, I just don't know, how can I say that to God? Well, he already knows that. And that's what he wants, to see. That's what he wants you to hear next because, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. And he talks about that. Verse 18, here it is. I have seen his ways. How about this one? This is a wonderful word tonight. I've seen his ways. I know who he is. I know what he's done. And I know what he would have done if there weren't external restraints. I know that. I'll listen to the last part of that. But I will heal him. Why? Because he took refuge in me. He was crushed. He was brokenhearted. He had given up on himself. And so he comes. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about anybody who comes here. And he came to me. And the eternal God says, I live in the high and holy place. But I live there with those who are crushed. You have come in. They've come there. And I do this. I revive them. I know where they've been, but I will heal them. Listen to that. Isn't that tremendous? I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Creating the praise of lips. Peace. How about that? Peace. The word of the Holy God to the person who comes to him. The word of the Holy God who knows everything that I have ever done. And all the things I would have done. Knowing it all. And knowing that some of it was right blatantly in his face. Some people, they heard the gospel the first time. They never refused it. Praise God for them. I wasn't in that category. But he knew it all. And he says, okay, I know that, but I'm going to change him. I'm going to heal him. And then when he says, I'm, I'm going to create something in him, I'm going to pray, create praise in his heart, and I'm going to speak to him peace. Peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. The warfare is over. This is where the chapters, the uh, whole section started, right? Cry unto Jerusalem that her warfare is over. That she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all of her sins. It's tremendous. Peace. Peace to those that are near. Peace to those far away. But uh, says the Lord, and what? I will heal him the power of the work of the lord jesus christ on the cross is immense 
It's more than enough to take care of all sin, but that's not the extent of it. With the sin removed, the guilt of sin taken from me and placed onto him, the eternal God is now able not just to forgive me and let me run around as a forgiven person, but to take that warped life, that distorted soul that is ours because we walked the wrong way and rebuild it and remake it. And when the work is finished, when the work is finished, you're going to look just like Jesus Christ. You will have an... That's what it says. We're going to be to the praise of the glory of His grace. We are finally going to be presented faultless. Why? Because we're going to be so completely remade in Christ that there is no fault. It's not just the forgiveness of sin. It's a man made new. It's a woman made new. It's a, that's the outworking of the work of Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous section of Scripture. Jewish people had kind of refused it. And so what does he say? This is for everybody. But tonight it means this. That there's nobody here. That's the that's the point of this whole section. Is that it, that this is extended to every human being that wants to come. All they have to do is take refuge. They have to move in, but it doesn't matter who they are. All the restrictions that the law put on who could come into the full sermon that's out of the way. The difficulties of the covenant have been dealt with because Jesus Christ paid the price for the whole thing. Book of Ephesians just says that in paying the price for sin, he moves the law out of the way. And now we're all in the same, the same church, the same one group of people who belong to him. And tonight, it's possible, no matter where you've been, what you've done, if you're ready tonight to seek the Lord while he may be found, he may be found while he's speaking and he's speaking. He speaks through his word. And tonight you have the opportunity to run to him. Have you ever done that? If you haven't done it, he's waiting tonight. He's, he's, he's here, ready to meet you as you come. Thus says the high and lofty one, the tremendous, inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. But with him also, who is a humble and contrite spirit, to revive the spirit, of the humble, to revive the spirit, to remake the spirit of the crushed one. Let's pray. Father, we come to give you thanks for your work in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to give you thanks for the gospel. Father, we're asking you by your spirit tonight to meet each person in accordance with you, with their need. We thank you for your acceptance. We thank you that we can come to you. And we're asking you to bring each one of us into the full experience of fellowship with you. And we trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.